Irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. Sapphire Planet. Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan is a 1982 American science fiction film released by Paramount Pictures. The film is the second feature based on the Star Trek science fiction franchise. The plot features Admiral James T. Kirk, played by William Shatner, and the crew of the starship USS Enterprise, facing off against the genetically engineered tyrant Khan Noonan Singh, played by Ricardo Montalban, a character who first appeared in the 1967 Star Trek television series episode titled Space Seed. When Khan escapes from a 15-year exile to exact revenge on Kirk, the crew of the Enterprise must stop him from acquiring a powerful terraforming device named Genesis. The film concludes with the death of the Enterprise's captain, Spock, played by Leonard Nimoy, beginning a story arc that continues with the 1984 film Star Trek III and the search for Spock and concludes with the 1986 Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. After the lackluster critical and commercial response to the first movie, Star Trek, the motion picture, series creator Gene Roddenberry was forced out of the sequel's production. Executive producer Harve Bennett wrote the film's original outline, which Jack B. Sowards developed into a full script. Director Nicholas Myers completed the final script in 12 days without accepting a writing credit. Meyer's approach evoked the swashbuckling atmosphere of the series, and the theme was reinforced by James Horner's musical score. Leonard Nimoy only reprised his role as Spock because the character's death was intended to be irrevocable. negative test audience reaction to Spock's death led to significant revisions of the ending over director Meyer's objection. The production used various cost-cutting techniques to keep within budget, including utilizing miniatures from past projects and reusing sets, effects footage, and costumes 
from the previous movie. Among the film's technical achievements is that it is the first feature film to contain a complete sequence created entirely with computer-generated graphics. The Wrath of Khan was released in North America on June 4, 1982. It was a box office success, earning $97 million worldwide and setting a world record for first-day box office gross. Critical reaction to the film was positive. Reviewers highlighted Khan, the film's pacing, and the characters' interactions as strong elements. Negative reaction focused on weak special effects and some of the acting. The Wrath of Khan is considered by some to be the best film in the entire Star Trek series, and it is credited with renewing substantial interest in the franchise. What was the plot? This is it. In the year 2285, Admiral James T. Kirk oversees a simulator session of Captain Spock's trainees. In the simulation, Lieutenant Savick commands the starship USS Enterprise on a rescue mission to save the crew of a damaged ship. When the Enterprise enters Klingon space to reach the ship, it is attacked by Klingon cruisers and critically damaged. The simulation is named the Kobayashi Maru, a no-win scenario designed to test the character of Starfleet officers. Later, Dr. McCoy joins Kirk on his birthday. Seeing Kirk in low spirits, the doctor advises Kirk to get a new command and not grow old behind a desk. Meanwhile, the USS Reliant is on a mission to search for a lifeless planet for testing of the Genesis device, a technology designed to reorganize matter to create habitable worlds for colonization. Reliant officers Commander Pavel Chekhov and Captain Clark Terrell beam down to the surface of a possible candidate planet, which they believe to be SETI Alpha 6. Once there, they are captured by genetically engineered tyrant Khan. Enterprise discovers Khan's ship adrift in space 15 years previously. Kirk exiled Khan and his fellow supermen from the 20th century Earth to SETI Alpha 5 after they attempted to take over the Enterprise. After they were marooned, SETI Alpha 6 exploded, shifting the orbit of SETI Alpha 5 and destroying its ecosystem. Khan blames Kirk for the death of his wife and plans revenge. He implants Chekhov and Terrell with indigenous eels that enter the ears of the victims and renders them susceptible to mind control and uses the officers to capture Reliant. Learning of Genesis, Khan attacks space section Regula 1 where the device is about is being deployed by Kirk's former lover, Dr. Carol Marcus, and their son David, whom she'd never told Kirk about.
Enterprise, embarks on a three-week training voyage. Kirk assumes command after the ship receives a distress call from Regula One. En route, Enterprise is ambushed and crippled by Reliant, leading to the deaths and injuries of many trainees. Khan hails Enterprise and offers to spare Kirk's crew if they relinquish all material related to Genesis. Kirk stalls for time and uses Reliance prefix code to remotely lower its shield, allowing Enterprise to counterattack. Khan is forced to retreat and effect repairs, while Enterprise limps to regular one. Kirk, Dr. McCoy, and Savik beam to the station and find Terrell and Chekhov alive, along with slaughtered members of the Marcus team. They soon find Carol and David hiding deep inside the planetoid of Regula. Khan, having used Terrell and Chekhov as spies, orders them to kill Kirk. Terrell resists the eel's influence and kills himself, while Chekhov collapses as the eel leaves his body. Khan then transports Genesis aboard Reliant. Though Khan believes he is his foe stranded on Regular One, Kirk and Spock use a coded message to arrange a rendezvous. Kirk directs Enterprise into the nearby Mutara Nebula. Static discharges inside the nebula render shields useless and comprise targeting systems, making Enterprise and Reliant evenly matched. Kirk exploits Khan's inexperience in space combat and three-dimensional thinking to critically disable the ship Reliant. Mortally wounded, Khan activates Genesis, which will reorganize all matter in the nebula, including the Enterprise. Although Kirk's crew detects the activation of Genesis and attempts to move out of range, they will not be able to escape the nebula in time due to the ship's damaged warp drive. Spock goes to the engine room to restore the warp drive. When McCoy tries to prevent Spock's entry, as exposure to the high levels of radiation would be fatal, Spock incapacitates the doctor with a Vulcan nerve pinch and performs a mind meld, telling him to remember Spock successfully restores power to the warp drive and the Enterprise escapes the explosion, though at the cost of his life. The explosion of Genesis causes the gas in the nebula to reform into a new planet capable of sustaining life. Kirk arrives in the engine room as Spock lies dying of radiation poisoning. A space burial is held in the Enterprise's torpedo room, and Spock's coffin is shot into orbit around the new planet. The crew leaves to pick up Reliance, crew marooned from SETI Alpha 5. Spock's coffin, having soft landed, rests on the Genesis planet's surface. The cast. 
William Shatner plays James T. Kirk, a Starfleet Admiral and former commander of the Enterprise. Kirk and Khan never confront each other face-to-face during the film. All of their interactions are over a view screen or through communicators, and their scenes were filmed four months apart. Although a draft script had Khan defeating Kirk in a sword fight. Director Myers described Shatner as an actor actor who was naturally protective of his character and himself and who performed better over multiple takes. Ricardo Montalban portrays Khan Noonan Singh, a genetically enhanced superhuman who used his strength and intellect to briefly rule much of Earth in the 1990s. Montalban said that he believed all good villains do villainous things, but think that they are acting for the right reasons. In this way, Khan uses his anger at the death of his wife to justify his pursuit of Kirk. The film was close to production approval when it occurred to the producers that no one had asked Montalban whether he was interested in appearing in the film. Despite his character having been in the scripts for more than a year, Montalban was unsure whether he could possibly play Khan again after so many years, especially given his current role of Mr. Rourke on Fantasy Island. Contrary to speculation that Montalban used a prosthetic chest, no artificial devices were added to emphasize Montalban's muscular physique since even in his 60s and despite an increasingly painful back injury stemming from being thrown off a horse in the 1950s Montalban had a vigorous workout routine it was said he would swim a hundred laps every day in his pool Montalban enjoyed making the film and counted the role as a career highlight. His major complaint was that he was never face-to-face with Shatner for a scene. I had to do my lines with a script girl who, as you might imagine, sounded nothing like Bill Shatner, he explained. Captain Spock is portrayed by Leonard Nimoy. Nimoy had not intended to have a role in the motion picture sequel, but was enticed back on the promise that his character would be given a dramatic death scene. Nimoy felt it was logical that as Wrath of Khan would be the final Star Trek film having Spock go out in a blaze of glory would be an appropriate way to end the character. DeForest Kelly plays Leonard McCoy, the Enterprise's chief medical officer and close friend of Kirk and Spock. Kelly was dissatisfied with an earlier version of the script to the point that he considered not taking part. Kelly noted his character spoke many of the film's lighter lines and felt this role was essential in bringing a lighter side to the on-screen drama. Other members of the Enterprise crew include Chief Engineer Montgomery Scott, played by James Doolan, also known as Scotty. Helmsman 
Hakura Sulu, played by George Tiaki, and communication officer Uhura, played by Michelle Nichols. Nichols and Gene Roddenberry took issue with the elements of the film, including the naval references and militaristic uniforms. Nichols also defended Roddenberry when the producers believed he was the source of script leaks. George Takai had simply not wanted to reprise his role until Shatner persuaded him to return. Kelly felt that McCoy, speaking his catchphrase, He's dead, Jim, during Spock's death scene, would ruin the moment's seriousness. So Duan delivers the line, He's dead already, to Kirk. Scott loses his young nephew following Khan's attack on the Enterprise. The cadet played by Ike Eisenman had many of his lines cut from the original theatrical release, including a scene where it is explained he is Scott's relative. These scenes were reintroduced when ABC TV aired The Wrath of Khan on television in 1985 and in the director's edition making Scott's grief at the crewman's death more understandable. Walter Koenig plays Pavel Chekhov, the Reliance first officer and former Enterprise crew member. During filming, Kelly noted that Chekhov never met Khan in the episode Space Seed. Cohing had not yet joined the cast. And thus, Khan, recognizing Chekhov on SETI Alpha, did not make sense. Star Trek books have tried to rationalize this discrepancy. In the film's novelization by Vonda Ann McIntyre, Chekhov is an ensign assigned to the Night Watch during Space Seed and met Khan in an off-screen scene. The non-conical novel To Rain in Hell, The Exile of Khan Noonan Singh explains the error by having Chekhov escort Khan to the surface of Seti Alpha after the events of the television episode. The real cause of the error was a simple oversight by filmmakers. Myers defended the mistake by noting that Arthur Conan Doyle made similar oversights in his Sherlock Holmes stories. Chekhov screaming while being infested by the city eel led Cohing to jokingly dub the film Star Trek II. Chekhov screams again in reference to a similar screaming scene in Star Trek The Motion Picture. Paul Winfield plays Reliant Captain Mark Terrell. Meyer had seen Winfield's work in such films as Sounder and wanted to direct him. Meyer thought in retrospect that the city eel scenes might have been corny but felt that Winfield's performance helped add gravity to the scene. Other characters included Kirstie Alley as Savak, Spock's protege, and a Starfleet commander in training aboard the Enterprise. The movie was Alley's first feature film role. Savak cries during Spock's funeral. Meyer said that during filming, someone asked him, Are you going to let her do that? And I said, Yeah. And they said, But Vulcans don't cry. 
And I said, well, that's what makes this such an interesting Vulcan. The character's emotional outburst can be partly explained by the fact that Savak was described as a mixed Vulcan-Romulan heritage in the script, though no indication is given on film. Kirstie Alley was so fond of her Vulcan ears that she would take them home with her at the end of each day. Bibi Bisch played Carol Marcus, the lead scientist working on Project Genesis, and mother of Kirk's son David, played by Merritt Buttrick. Myers was looking for an actress who looked beautiful enough that it was plausible a womanizer such as Kirk would fall for her, yet who could also project a sense of intelligence. Myers liked that Butrick's hair was blonde, like Besh's, and curly like Shatner's, making him a plausible son of the two. After the release of the motion picture, the first Star Trek movie, executive producer Gene Roddenberry wrote his own sequel. In his plot, the crew of the Enterprise travel back in time to set right a corrupted timeline after Klingons use the Guardian of Forever to prevent the assassination of John F. Kennedy. This was rejected by Paramount executives, who blamed the poor performance and large budget of the first movie, they spent $46 million, on its plotting pace and the constant rewrites Gene Roddenberry demanded. As a consequence, Roddenberry was moved removed from the production and, according to Bill Shatner, kicked upstairs to the ceremonial position of executive consultant. Harv Bennett, a new Paramount television producer, was made producer for the next Star Trek film. According to Bennett, he was called in front of a group including Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner and asked if he thought he could make a better film than the motion picture which Bennett confessed he found really boring. When Bennett replied in the affirmative, Charles Bloodhorn asked, can you make it for less than $45 million? Bennett replied that, where I come from, I can make five movies for that. Bennett realized he had faced, he faced a serious challenge in developing the new Star Trek movie, partly due to his never having seen the television show. To compensate, Bennett watched all the original episodes. This immersion convinced Bennett that what the first movie lacked was a real villain. After seeing the episode from the TV show Space Seed, he decided that the character of Khan was the perfect enemy for the new film. Before the script was settled upon, Bennett gathered his production staff. He selected Robert Salen, the director of television commercials and a college friend, to produce the film. Salen's job would be to produce Star Trek II quickly and cheaply. Bennett also hired Michael Miner, as art director to shape the direction of the film. Bennett wrote his first treatment in November 1980. In his version entitled The War of Generations, Kirk investigates a rebellion on a distant world and discovers that his son is the leader of the rebels. Khan is the mastermind behind the plot and Kirk and Son join forces to defeat the tyrant. Bennett then hired Jack B. Sowards, an avid Star Trek fan 
to turn his outline into a film-able script. Soward wrote an initial script before the writer's strike in 1981. Soward's draft, The Omega Syndrome, involved the theft of the Federation's ultimate weapon, the Omega System. Sowards was concerned that his weapon was too negative, and Bennett wanted something more uplifting and fundamental in the 23rd century, as recumbent DNA is in our time. Miner recalled and suggested to Bennett that the device be turned into a terraforming tool instead. And, at the story conference the next day, Bennett hugged Miner and declared that he had saved Star Trek. In recognition of the biblical power of the weapon, Sowers renamed the Omega System to the Genesis device. By April 1981, Sowers had produced a draft that moved Spock's death to later in the story because of fan dissatisfaction to the event after the script was leaked. Spock had originally died in the first act in a shocking demise that Bennett compared to Janet Lee's early death in Psycho. This draft had a 12-page face-to-face confrontation between Kirk and Khan. Soward's draft also introduced a male character named Savick. As pre-production began, Samuel A. Peoples, writer of the Star Trek episode Where No Man Has Gone Before, was offered and invited to offer his own script. People's draft replaced Khan with two new villains named Sojin and Moray. The alien beings are so powerful, they almost destroy Earth by mistake. The script was considered inadequate. The aliens resemble too closely the villains on a typical Star Trek episode. Deadlines loomed for special effects production to begin which required detailed storyboards based on a complete script. And by this point, there was no finished script to use. Karen Moore, a Paramount executive, suggested to Bennett that Nicholas Meyer, writer of The 7% Solution and director of Time After Time, could help resolve the screenplay issues. Myers had also never seen an episode of Star Trek. He had the idea of making a list consisting of everything that was the creative team had liked from the preceding draft. It could be a character, it could be a scene, it could be a plot, it could be a subplot, it even could be a line of dialogue, so that he could use that list as a basis of a new screenplay made from all the best aspects of the previous one. To offset fan expectation that Spock would die, Meyer had the character killed in the Kobayashi Maru simulator in the opening scene. The effects company required a complete script in just 12 days. Myers wrote the screenplay uncredited, and for no pay, before the deadline, surprising the actors and producers, and rapidly produced subsequent rewrites as necessary. One draft, for example, had a baby in Khan's group who was killed with the others in the Genesis detonation. Myers later said, The chief contribution I brought to Star Trek II was a healthy disrespect. Star Trek was a human allegory in space format. That was both its strength and ultimately its weakness. 
I try through the irreverence to make them more human and I and a little less wooden. Why did Star Trek have to be so sanctified? I thought. Myers described his script as hornblower in outer space, util- u- utilizing nautical references and swashbuckling atmosphere. Hornblower was an inspiration to Roddenberry and Shatner when making the show, although Meyer was unaware of this. Salen was impressed with Meyer's vision of the film. His ideas brought dimension that broadened the scope of the material as we were working on it. Gene Roddenberry disagreed with the script's naval texture and Khan's Captain Arab undertones, but was mostly ignored by the creative team. Meyer attempted to change the look of Star Trek to match the nautical atmosphere he envisioned and stay within budget. The Enterprise, for example, was given a ship's bell, boatswain's call, and more blinking lights and signage. To save money on the set, production designer Joseph Jennings utilized existing elephants from Star Trek The Motion Picture that had been left standing after filming was completed. 65% of the film was shot on the same set. The Bridge of the Reliant and the Bridge Simulator from the opening scene were redresses of the Enterprise's bridge. The Klingon bridge from the Star Trek motion picture was redressed as the transporter and torpedo rooms. The filmmakers stretched the Wrath of Khan's budget by reusing models and footage from the Star Trek film, including footage of the Enterprise in space dock. The original ship's miniatures were used where possible or modified to stand in as new constructions. The orbital office complex from Star Trek The Motion Picture was inverted and retouched to become the regular one space station. Elements of the canceled Star Trek Phase II television show, such as bulkheads, railings, and sets, were cannibalized and reused. A major concern for the designers was that the Reliant should be easily distinguishable from the Enterprise. The ship's design was flipped after Bennett accidentally opened and approved the preliminary Reliant designs upside down. Designer Robert Fletcher was brought in to redesign existing costumes and create new ones. Fletcher decided on a scheme of corrupt colors, using materials with colors slightly off from the pure color. They're not colors you see today, so in a subtle way, indicate another time. Meyer did not like the Starfleet uniforms from either the television series or Star Trek The Motion Picture and wanted them changed, but for budgetary reasons, they could not be discarded completely. Dye tests of the fabric showed that the old uniforms took three colors well, blue-gray, gold, and dark red. Fletcher decided to use the dark red due to the strong contrast it provided with the background. The resulting naval-inspired designs would be used in Star Trek films until 1996's First Contact. The first versions of the uniforms had stiff black collars, but Salen suggested changing it to a turtleneck using a form of vertical quilting called trampunto. The method creates a bas-relief effect to the material by stuffing the outlined areas with soft thread shot via air pressure through a hollow needle. By the time the wrath of Khan's production, the machines and needles needed to produce 
Trampunto, were rare, and Fletcher was only able to find one needle for the entire wardrobe department. The crew was so worried about losing or breaking the needle that one of the department's workers took it home with him as a security measure, leading Fletcher to think it had been stolen. For Kahn and his followers, Fletcher created strong contrast with the highly organized Starfleet uniforms. His ideas was that the exiled costumes were made out of whatever they could find. Fletcher said, My intention with Khan was to express the fact that they had been marooned on the planet with no technical infrastructure, so they had to cannibalize from the spaceship whatever they used or wore. Thus, I tried to make it look as if they were dressed themselves out of pieces of upholstery and electrical equipment that comprised the ship. Khan's costume was designed with an open chest to show Ricardo Monobon's physique. Fletcher also designed smocks for the regular one scientists and civilian clothes for Kirk and McCoy that were designed to look practical and comfortable. Meyer had a no-smoking sign added to the Enterprise's bridge, which he recalled, everyone had a fit over. I said, why? Have they stopped smoking in the future? They've been smoking for 400 years. You think it's going to stop in the next two? The sign appeared in the first shot of the film, but was removed for all others, appearing in the final cut of the film. Principal photography began on November 9, 1981, and ended on January 29, 1982. The Wrath of Khan was more action-oriented than its predecessor, but less costly to make. The project was supervised by Paramount Television Unit, rather than its theatrical division. Bennett, a respected television veteran, made The Wrath of Khan on a budget of $11 million, far less than Star Trek The Motion Picture's $46 million. The budget was initially lower at $8.5 million, but rose when the producers were impressed by the first two weeks of footage. Meyer utilized camera and set tricks to spare the construction of large and expensive sets. For a scene taking place at Starfleet Academy, a forced perspective was created by placing scenery close to the camera to give the sense the set was larger than it really was. To present the illusion that the Enterprise's elevators moved between decks, corridor pieces were wheeled out of sight to change the hull configurations while the lift doors were closed. Background equipment, such as computer terminals, were rented when possible instead of purchased outright. Some design props, such as a redesigned phaser and communicator, were vetoed by Paramount executives in favor of existing materials from Star Trek The Motion Picture. This was all an effort to save money. The Enterprise was refurbished for its space shots, with its shiny exterior dulled down and extra detail added to the frame. Compared to the newly rebuilt Reliant, the Enterprise was hated by the effects artists and cameramen. It took eight people to mount the model, and a forklift truck to move it. The Reliant, meanwhile, was lighter and had less complex internal wiring. The ships were filmed on a blue screen with special film that does not register the color. The resulting shots could be added to effect shots on other footage. Any reflection of blue on the ship's hull would appear as a hole on the film, and gaps had to be patched by frame by frame for the final film. The same camera used to film Star Wars, the Dice Reflex, was used to film shots of the Enterprise and the other ships. The barren desert surface of SETI Alpha 4 was simulated on Stage 8, the largest sound stage at Paramount Studios. The set was elevated 25 feet, 
off the ground and covered in wooden mats over which tons of colored sand and powdered were dumped. A cyclorama was painted and wrapped around the set while massive industrial fans created the sandstorm. The filming was uncomfortable for actors and crew alike. The spandex environmental suits Cohen and his Winfield wore were unventilated and the actors had to signal by microphone when they needed air. Filming equipment was wrapped in plastic to prevent mechanical troubles, and everyone on set wore boots, masks, and coveralls as protection from flying sand. Spock's death was shot over three days, during which no visitors were allowed on set. Spock's death was to be irrevocable, but Nimoy had such a positive experience during filming that he asked if he could add a way for Spock to return in a later film. The mind meld sequence was initially filmed without Kelly's prior knowledge of what was going on. Shatner disagreed with having a clear glass separation between Spock and Kirk during the death scene. He instead wanted a transluence divider allowing viewers to only see Spock's silhouette. But his objection was overruled. During Spock's funeral sequence, Meyer wanted the camera to track the torpedo that served as Spock's coffin as it was placed in a long trough and slid into the launcher. The camera crew thought the entire set would have to be rebuilt in order to accommodate the shot, but Salen suggested putting a dolly into the trough and controlling it from above with an offset arm. Scott's rendition of Amazing Grace on the bagpipes was James Dewan's idea. Spock's death in the film was widely reported during production. Trekkies wrote letters to protest. One paid for trade press advertisement urging Paramount to change the plot. And Nimoy even received death threats. Test audience reacted badly to Spock's death and the film's ending's dark tone. So, it was made more uplifting by Bennett. The scene of Spock's casket on the planet and Nimoy's closing monologue were added. Myers objected, but did not stand in the way of the modification. Nimoy did not know about the scene until he saw the film, but before it opened, the media reassured fans that Spock will live again. Due to time constraints, the casket scene was filmed in an overgrown corner of San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, using smoke machines to add a primal atmosphere. The shoot lasted from midday to evening as the team was well aware there would be no time for reshoots. Special considerations were given during filming to allow for the integration of the planned special effects. Television monitors standing in for computer displays were specially calibrated so that the refresh rates did not result in banding on the film. Due to a loss of resolution and quality, resulting from re-photographing an elephant element in an optical printer. Live action sequences for effects were shot in 65mm or VistaVision formats to compensate. When the larger prints were reintroduced through anamorphic lens on the printer, the result was a Panavision composite. The Wrath of Khan features several reoccurring themes, including death, resurrection, and growing old. Upon writing his script, Meyer hit upon a link between Spock's death and the age of the characters. This was going to be a story in which Spock died, so it was going to be a story about death, and it was only a short hop, skip, and a jump to realize that it was going to be about old age and friendship, Meyer said. I don't think any of the other preliminary scripts were about old age, friendship, and death. In keeping with the theme of death and rebirth symbolized by Spock's sacrifice, 
and the Genesis device. Meyer wanted to call the film The Undiscovered Country in reference to Prince Hamlet's description of the death in William Shakespeare's Hamlet. But the title was changed during editing without his knowledge. Myers disliked Wrath of Khan, but it was chosen because he preferred Vengeance of Khan. Conflicted with Lucasfilm's forthcoming Revenge of the Jedi, later renamed Return of the Jedi, very late in the production. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.